My lesson this morning is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. If you'd like to follow along as I read aloud, it is found in your pew Bibles on page 15 in the New Testament section. Now, when Jesus heard this, now what he's talking about here, for those of you that don't know, is he just found out that John the Baptist had been executed. He withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place. And the hour is now late. Send them home. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. Will you give them something to eat? They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves. And gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children because for some reason they don't know how to count women and children in the first century. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. I commonly refer to this passage of scripture, camera, as the moment where we focus on the first fellowship dinner. The, the moment where everybody comes together and they, they celebrate and they hear this passage of Scripture. But I don't think we do it it justice. Because we always focus in on the loaves and fishes as the miracle of Jesus. But we don't talk about what led up to this passage of Scripture. You know, I mean, we, we think it's a beautiful moment. I mean, it's even on our stained glass window over here on the wall. We, we see it everywhere that you go. We talk about the loaves and fishes of the miracle that it represents, but we always forget the most important part, which is at the very beginning. He just had gone to his own hometown. And he started teaching parables. He probably shared a meal and conversation with his family members. But when he preaches at the local synagogue... And offers just a little bit of pastoral care. He's met with resistance and rejection. This is extremely hard, right? Because we have just been talking about Matthew chapter 13. About the parables that he was talking about. These beautiful passages of how to live our lives. And to think that to be able to go to your own hometown and talk about this. And then to be rejected. This is, a, this is a real thing, by the way. A lot of you here in this room have grown up in Perry and have gone away and come back. And some of you are transplants like myself and have found this to be a place that you call home. 
but you know that when you talk just for a moment and you offer a, a little pastoral care, sometimes it gets taken the wrong way. One phrase that I try very hard to not say is what you should be doing is. It, 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 it's the, it, it drives me crazy. When I was teaching, I tried very hard to say this, not to say this to my students. When I am in ministry, when I'm in, in, in school, when, when someone says that, they say basically to you, you're not capable of making your own choices or decisions. So what you should be doing is what I'm telling you to do. So here's Jesus talking to his people and they're like, well, thanks. But what you should be doing is telling somebody else because we don't have anything wrong with us. Another thing that happens when a minister hands out pastoral care and it's terrifying. I mean, I'm telling you right now, I stay awake at night. I hyperanalyze every single conversation. All of you in here know that. I hyperanalyze every single conversation I have with each and every one of you because I'm afraid that I've said something stupid. Because I'm good at that. Ask my kids. And what happens is when I hyperanalyze these things, I worry about, did I say something that wants you to leave our church? Because that's real. And I might have just been saying, uh, I can pray with you, but I can't fix what's going on in your life. And because I said it that way, they grab their children, they grab all of their stuff, they pick up their toys, and they go to some other church down the street. It happens all the time. Luckily, it's never happened here because, again, you're the perfect church. But there's another part to this at the beginning of chapter 14 that really bugs me. And it really leads into this story that we don't do a good enough job talking about. I tell you all the time about how Rome looks at the human beings as if they were fleas on an elephant. And you hear me say that, but what you hear me say is, uh, it's, it's, it's a really cool idea, Josh. No, no. I want you to look at how they valued Life, or how they devalued life. John the Baptist didn't even break Roman law. He hadn't even done anything wrong. He was actually, in, in a lot of senses, would be considered a Nazarite because he decided to separate himself from the community. He was doing baptisms, you know, but they didn't necessarily have a problem with that. It's just the way that he was doing it they had a problem with. And somehow they get him arrested and somebody inside of Herod's house decides, well, what I want is John the Baptist's head on a plate. I want you to think of the mental imagery that someone has to do in order to take or devalue human life enough to take their physical head and put it on a plate and show it to everyone in the room as if it's some sort of trophy. This kind-hearted, loving person to us meant nothing to them. His physical body is thrown away as if it's human 
refuse or garbage. And we just read through it like it just happened. And then we get to that part where Jesus hears this, which is where we start today. And the very first thing he does is he goes and he tries to seek solitude. I mean, obviously they were close. Obviously they had some sort of connection and he is just deeply hurt from the news of this. But he can't do anything about it. And as if, as if it just, everybody in the audience just doesn't notice, they all start to follow him to where he was. Now Jesus, who does phenomenal pastoral care, girds himself up, heals and cures the people around him, I mean, even the disciples looked at him and said, look, we're in a deserted place. You know, we should send them away. And he's like, you should feed them. Why would you send them away? They came to find solace in us. Now, there's a lot of irony here. But before we get to that, at the news and the stinging sense of the rejection, Jesus seeks a solitude place. But not for long, because as soon as he does it, the crowd already gathers, and his heart was filled with pity for them, it says. So he sets his preferences aside and administers healing and sustenance to them. And in the process of this ministry, Jesus models and trains servanthood to his disciples. The irony is, is that Matthew juxtaposes two kings and two kingdoms in this session. We have King Herod who presides over a raucous banquet where he ends up executing John and puts his head on a piece of platter. And then we have a king who provides a meal for his subjects. Jesus' withdrawal is designed to coincide directly with the announcement of John's death. It's hard not to mention that Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 is another example of compassion. In this story of the loaves and fish, Jesus' compassion comes across as an act of human response to a group of people who have among them sick ones in need of care. Sound familiar? The Eucharistic or the communal understanding, the great thanksgiving or the eschatological, the end times passage of this are heard in this passage that now we are at the table and in the moment of ordinance or sacrament of the common life seek to obey Jesus. And he tells them this is the most important part, church. You give them something to eat. disciples. Jesus moves from a pastor-centered to a ministry-centered moment. He, said, he doesn't say, I will feed them. He says, but you give them to something to eat. Now Mark adds, the Gospel of Mark adds, coincidentally, they did not understand what he was saying. And for their hearts were hardened, for they were continuing to crawl like babies. Thank you, Mark, for making them 
film sound dumb again. There's something to be said about this moment in the aspect of seeking solitude versus isolation and administering pastoral care. One cannot have the ability to administer pastoral care when they have not sought out solitude. You have to be in the right mindset to take care of others. Think about this. What do you do when you hear tragic news? Our world has taught us for almost a century that men should never cry and women should not share their true emotions or, or should talk about it because if they do that, they're too emotional. If men do it, they're too emotional. They should not have the ability to express their true feelings. Why? Because human beings can't do that. Which is a lie, church. It's the worst lie that we have taught ourselves. There is no limit or time frame of grief. There is no way to deal with trauma without dealing with the trauma. You have to have those moments of solitude. It's important to understand the difference between solitude and isolation. If I'm seeking solace, I'm asking God to provide that moment of comfort, to give me that place of care. And if I haven't found it that day, I need to keep searching for it and seeking it until I find it and feel it and I'm okay. Isolation says I pull myself away from everyone, including God. And I say, you know what? I don't need you, God. I can do this myself. And then I ask that person, how's it going for you? And you remember that moment of me hyperanalyzing? I feel pretty awful after I've said those things. I beat myself up over it because I really, what I want to say is I struggle with it also. But I don't want to open myself up to you completely because if I do, well then... You see a piece of me, and I can't do that, because I was brought up just like you. Imagine what it would be like to step into the disciples' shoes. How would you have felt if Jesus asked you to feed a small town of 5,000? Sound familiar? Now, Brother Bell's Barbecue could not feed all 5,000 people without the assistance of the church, right? But this is not the feeding that we're talking about here. One of the things that we talked about at the, the uh, leadership planning moment yesterday was is that my vision for the church this next year is to make sure that we understand the difference between feeding people and feeding people. I'm all about putting food on people's tables but I want to make sure that we as a church are helping them deal with the grief and the trauma of everyday life. I want people to feel the presence of God in the name of Jesus Christ when they walk into our sanctuary and when they meet you on the street. I want to feed not just the city of Perry. I want to feed the world by the love and compassion that you have shown me and my family in such a way that everyone 
everyone feels the presence of God. And that you give them something to eat, not just me. So we as a church, my vision for the church this year is I want us to feed people and feed people. You guys remember what this is like. You think of summer homecomings and picnics and people coming and everybody having a great time and we're drinking iced tea and Kool-Aid and having just a wonderful moment together. And we're there together in the, in the really bad moments, weeping and hugging and gnashing of teeth moments. I also don't think I do a good enough job telling you how I deal with things. Because I think a lot of times people think that, oh, well, Josh is, I hear this a lot. Josh, we're worried about you and you're overextending yourself. So I, I want to I help give some uh, comfort in those moments of how my brain works and how you're a part of that. So let's start with number one. I, I have ADD. There's nothing I can say uh, other than that except for I start on one process and then I'm going, ooh, this is really cool, squirrel. <laughs> and then I'm doing this process, and then I'm doing this one, and I'm like, ooh, this is really fun, squirrel. And before you know it, before Monday afternoon, I am working on 10 different things, and I started off on this one, and I should have just finished that before I went to these. I really wish I could make up an excuse, but that's how my brain works. It's not a good thing. It's something I always struggled with all the way through school, and those of you that have it, can totally relate with me how I'm, I'm feeling most of the time. However, it does get to a point where it goes super crazy and my wife says, okay, you have to not do this on Thursday. And I have to say, yes, ma'am. And it sounds like it's, she's my boss, but really it's because I'm just going because I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. She does it to slow me down. To say, you need to take and seek a moment of solitude. It might not be with just Carmen and the kids. It might be just Josh going camping. It might be Josh going to a monastery. Who knows? But Carmen is really good at telling when Josh is about ready to spontaneously combust. So that's number one. That's, that's how I know and when I'm supposed to seek solitude. Number two, I think that uh, we need to get rid of the, the stigma of this. I, I have a lot of ministerial colleagues that are right now, for some reason, doing sermon series on uh, mental illness and how to take care of mental health. And we need to get rid of the stigma of seeing a therapist. And I have two. I have a psychiatrist who takes care of the pharmacology side of my manic depression and bipolar aspects of my life. And then I have a psychologist who helps me deal with my trauma. And I see them both. I see my psychiatrist every three months and my psychologist once a month. And why am I telling you this? Because it's important for you to seek those moments of solitude and pastoral care from a professional as well as your church. And to not be weirded out about it. Your trauma is your trauma. And I can't necessarily fix that. I, I was not trained on to how to fix trauma 
I went to seminary, and I, and I do have uh, the most, uh, the, the psychology degree, but it was in child and adolescent development. Uh, so it, it's not necessarily all the other things. So I, I want to remove that stigma for you as far as seeking pastoral care. The third part is, is I, I have you. I have a congregation that recognizes also that I get to a point when I don't take my days off enough. They say, you need to go home. And most of the time I listen. That's important for my personal pastoral care. Understand, I'm talking about me. And the fourth and final thing, what did I say at the first service? It doesn't matter. For me, those three are very important. The fourth one, for me, most likely would be the aspect of I, I recognize that I get to a point where I have to slow myself down and I spontaneously combust. And I, and I haven't had that in a long time. And it's been a really cool experience to be able to do that. But receiving pastoral care from you, that's the fourth one, helps me find my moments of solace. So in conclusion, it's important that while we look at this story, as Jesus is dealing with the death, gruesome death, of John the Baptist, he then feeds 5,000 people because it needed to be done. In this place, we, we extend pastoral care when we feed people and we feed people. And that's not just the pastor's job. That is our ministry that's when Jesus says, you give the people something to eat. That becomes our responsibility to live it, to breathe it, and to make it a part of our daily lives. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.